Okay, well, it's lovely to see you all here this evening, and uh, it's quite a challenging passage, this one, isn't it? Um, I think you just probably know that just from hearing it once through. Um, And one of the things it reminded me of is that for much of my own life, I have been um, a bit of a people pleaser. I've been concerned with pleasing others in order that they will like me, that they will be pleased with me, so that they won't think badly of me. Um, I remember when I was in business, and I would pretty much always do what my line managers wanted me to do, because I feared challenging them. I was afraid that if I didn't do what they asked me, they would no longer want me working for them. And so I pleased them. And because I pleased them, I did well. I got promoted. I was trusted, and I ended up running the UK division of that particular company. So you might think the strategy of pleasing people is a good one, and certainly it has some merits. You can't be a good team member, for example, if you're always antagonistic. However, as a result of my tendency to please people, I also compromised myself quite a bit. For instance, when a downturn occurred in the economy and the company had to restructure, I was told to lay off 20% of my staff. At that time, I was responsible for about 80 people. And I did so with great professionalism and care, but I didn't fight my management in order to have less people laid off. I did what they asked me because I feared the consequences of not doing so, even though I wasn't entirely sure that we really needed to lay all of them off. Sometimes when we do things to please particular people, especially when we do it for the wrong reasons, we can hurt others, and we can even hurt the people we're trying to please. Spoiling a child is a very well-known example, isn't it, of hurting someone by pleasing them. A child needs boundaries and good discipline, as well as love. Another one is peer pressure. When I was in my teens, I was in a a friendship circle which constantly challenged each other to more and more risky adventures and dares. I found myself doing things that were wrong um, or downright illegal because I wanted to please the group. I wanted to protect my reputation to be included as one of the lads. Even though I felt incredibly uncomfortable about some of the things that I was being encouraged to do. That's got you all wondering, hasn't it? Suffice it to say that it all came to an end one particular day when a prank blew up in our faces and we ended up spending a night in a cell in Swindon Jail. Now you're really wondering. (laughs) But at the root of it all, all the people-pleasing that we do, the root of it all is fear. It's always fear. Sadly, many of the decisions we make, the relationships that we keep, the priorities which we make in our lives, are governed or at the very least influenced by fear. And in this passage from Luke 12, Jesus speaks quite a lot about fear, doesn't he? And he tells us, 
in, a, in essence, that there's a bad kind of fear and that there's a good kind of fear. But first, some background. By the time that Jesus is, reaches this point, um, it's coming towards the end of his sort of the Galilean period of his ministry. Um, well, a chap called Robin Gamble, who um, recently ran our Leading Your Church into Growth course, um, and has written a book, a very good book called Jesus the Evangelist, um, helpfully divides Jesus' ministry up into um, three periods um, in those three years that fall between Jesus' baptism at the age of 30 and his death and resurrection um, three years later. And in the first part, which is perhaps the longest part, um, he stayed effectively on home turf. Um, he was from the region of Galilee, of course, um, so he would have... Uh, to a, to a Jerusalemite, he would have had a northern accent. He would have been a Mancunian or a Yorkshireman. And for the first part of his ministry, he traveled and spoke and taught in that northern area um, of Israel, known as the Galilee, because, of course, it included the Sea of Galilee. And during that time, he was mostly talking about some good news called the kingdom of God. And he was healing the sick, and he was driving out demons. But in the next chapter, 13, verse 22, we're told that he sets out for Jerusalem. And that's the second phase of his, of his ministry. And he made his way down through the towns and villages, probably following down the Jordan Valley, going through Jericho, um, with the ultimate destination being Jerusalem. And during that time, although he continues to tell the good news and to heal, we start to hear him talk about his future death on the cross. There's growing opposition from the religious establishment, as well as a deepening discipleship for those who are close to him. That's the second period. And the final period, of course, is Jerusalem itself, which includes a relatively short time of teaching in the temple in the weeks before he's arrested. And then, of course, he's arrested, um, executed, raised from the dead, and returns to his Father in heaven. So in our reading, we're just coming to the end of the first period, his Galilean ministry, and he's beginning to take his followers into a deeper relationship. It's also the height of Jesus' popularity, because we're told in verse 1 of our passage that, that a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another. It seems that Jesus, at this point, had the popularity of something like the Beatles when everybody used to go mad over them. And although this great crowd is around him, we're told that he speaks first to the disciples. And he speaks very much to a group of followers for whom he's not going to be around for very much longer. And what he tells them are not just instructions for the moment. He's giving them a strong lesson about life after he's gone. And what he says is, you need to watch out, be on your guard. Or perhaps we might translate it, you need to sharpen up. And the first thing that he warns them about is what he calls the yeast of the Pharisees. What does he mean by that? Well, Jesus goes on to say one or two very key things about our relationship with God. So I'll explain that in a minute. The first point he makes is that God knows us. Just like Tracy was telling us from, from Psalm 139. God knows us. He knows us intimately. There's absolutely nothing 
we can hide from God. Verse 2 says, there's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you've said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. What you've whispered um, in the ear, in the inner rooms will be com- proclaimed from the roofs. And you know, it reminded me, of, you know, there's a member of parliament at the moment, isn't there, caught up in a scandal over cash for questions. I'm sure he'd hoped that would remain concealed. But everything comes out. And of course, with God, absolutely everything comes out. And Jesus is reminding them that there is absolutely not one single corner of our lives, not one tiny thing we have said or done or felt that God doesn't know about. So let me ask you something. How do you feel about that level of exposure? Total exposure. I don't know about you, does it make you feel, does it make you feel a little uncomfortable? It does me. There's simply no pretending with God. That's why Jesus said, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Because hypocrisy is pretending to be something that we're not. And the Pharisees, this this very religious group that was quite popular at the time, made out that they were very godly, very pious, very close to God, but Jesus sees right through them. They're really only looking out for themselves, but there's no pretending with God. And yet we do pretend. Why is that? Well, I think it's because we fear of what we fear. We fear what others might think of us. But then Jesus goes on in verse 4 to say that we shouldn't fear other people. Amazingly, he says, we shouldn't even fear those who might kill us because that's the worst they could do to us. What? What does he mean by that? Surely, what, what could be worse than being killed? That's an outrageous statement. Well, what could be worse than being killed is then spending the rest of eternity shut out from God's love. Jesus calls it hell. Jesus says, fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. In other words, how we respond to God in this life is infinitely more important than whether or not we curry favour with people we think can influence things for us. He's teaching his disciples, those who will be responsible after his death to carry the message of the gospel to the world, that they need to have a much greater respect for God than for those people who will inevitably try to crack down on this newfound freedom that Jesus is talking about and revert to their religious traditions. Fear has always been the greatest enemy of the gospel. But the good news is that this fear of God which Jesus is referring to is healthy fear and respect for the creator of the universe. In verse 6, Jesus opens up a picture of God's love and care for us. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And yet, not one of them is forgotten by God. And of course, a sparrow is a small, insignificant bird that was the least valuable of all the birds. And yet, Jesus says, God knows every single one of them. And he knows us so intimately that he even knows things about us that we don't know, like the number of hairs on our head. And he finishes by saying, 
Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. And I don't know if anyone here tonight imagines that you are so insignificant that God wouldn't care about you, that God wouldn't take that time to know you, that you aren't worth spending his, his spending time over. But let me tell you, God loves you. And he doesn't just love the bits on the outside which we display to the world and to other people. He doesn't just love the masks that we wear, that we put on to please one another. He loves that bit in the middle, that battle-worn, partly damaged, fearful, anxious soul, which is the real you, right at the centre of your heart. And he says, look at me, trust me, I am the one to whom you should turn. And so this is the great paradox of what Jesus is saying, and it's very good news. If we love and trust God with all our hearts, we will not need to fear anyone or anything else. Just imagine how good life would be if we weren't afraid of anything or any person. Wouldn't that be good? And we have the potential to fear so many different things, don't we? Hands up who fears, well you don't have to, but hands up who fears what other people think of them. (laughs) I, I admit that. And yet, the one we follow, or try to follow, never did. Jesus never feared what other people thought of him, and he taught his disciples to fear only God. Some people fear running out of money. Perhaps there's one or two here tonight who fear that. Some fear that they'll never get a decent job. Some people fear not having enough to retire on. In fact, there's a a passage just after this about a rich fool who's a bit like that. He's actually got plenty, but he he doesn't trust it and and, and he he tries to to store up more and more. Some of us fear perhaps that we won't find fulfilment in relationships. Well, there are some biblical characters like that. Even Abraham himself couldn't wait for God to do the miracle. And so he had a child with his concubine, Hagar, um, because he didn't trust God that Sarah would produce a child. How many of us fear that our health will break down? Well, of course, in the end, all of our health will break down temporarily in this world. How many of us fear that that we'll let other people down? There was a servant in a parable, the parable of the talents, who was given one talent, who feared that he would let his master down. And that fear led him to really uh, being of little use. How many of us fear for the future of our children? And God says, trust me and I'll bless them for generations. So what's the cure for all this fear? Jesus tells his disciples that it's really about trusting God, that their future is not in their hands, but in God's hands. He's the one to respect. He's the one to keep our eyes on. And Jesus enlarges on that theme in verse 8, saying that whoever publicly acknowledges me, he says, before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. In other words, 
if they overcome their fear of the Pharisees and publicly declare their faith in Jesus, then their eternal destinies are assured, even if they get killed in the process. And in hindsight, of course, we know that all 11 disciples who remained after Jesus, after, sorry, after Judas had hanged himself, were eventually executed for their faith in Jesus. Today, as we speak, there's a Christian pastor on death row in Iran for simply holding church services in Tehran. But he's also living out this deep commitment which Jesus makes on the lives of his disciples. Jesus calls us through this passage to be nothing less than all out for him. Before Kirsty and I went out on our recent trip to South Africa, we were somewhat gobsmacked, really, as we got to hear about the church that Kylie's attending um, uh, out there in, a, in this town called Nelstrom in the Limpopo area of South Africa. And I was telling the church this morning that Kylie's joined a home group there. She was invited into the home group. And um, that that home group has actually changed the language that they speak in the home group in order that Kylie can be included in the group. Isn't that amazing? She's the foreigner. They are all Afrikaans. They all speak Afrikaans. That's their first language. But they have changed the language they speak in order to welcome her into the group. That is radical discipleship, isn't it? That's all-out love. And a couple of months ago, she was invited to attend a leadership training course. The sort of thing that they would probably have to do in their church in order to become a small group leader, um, something like, or or, or some other aspect of, of ministry. Guess what? The course was 15 evenings every night on the trot, no breaks. <laughs> Unbelievable. And, and amazingly, they had actually quite a good take-up. Um, it, it, uh, it, it, it really got me thinking. That's the kind of radical discipleship that Jesus is calling his disciples to in this passage. And it's interesting that this passage is wedged between two related passages. Because this is all about priorities, Will we fear people or trust God? Will we fear our reputation or trust God? Will we fear our financial well-being or trust God? And so on. Because this passage comes before... Sorry, the passage that comes before this one is all about the people who prioritise religious practice over love of God. And in in that passage, it's in, in, in chapter 11, Jesus gets really angry... And accuses the Pharisees of wanting to, to, to be thought of as experts in the law, or wanting to be thought of as generous, putting on a good show and all the rest. And yet, neglecting the poor, neglecting justice, not loving God, loading people down with burdens without lifting a finger to help. In other words, they are hypocrites. That's the yeast of the Pharisees. They prioritise almost everything else before practising love and compassion. And the passage which follows this one is the one I mentioned about a rich fool who stores up grain in his barns and when he can't fit any more in his barns, he knocks down all the barns and he builds bigger ones so that he can store up even more. Not realising that the very next day he's going to die. This man prioritises money and materials over love of God and neighbour. And right in the middle of these two examples is our passage in in which Jesus teaches his disciples to prioritise only one thing. 
their relationship with God in Jesus Christ. Because that is the answer to all the fears and dangers that lie ahead. But if Jesus is calling us to be these all-out disciples of his, well, I'm not sure I feel well enough equipped. Will we make a mess of it if we really commit to going for it, to following him? Well, the final paragraph explains why that won't be the case. You see, we're not on our own. God has given to all his believers the Holy Spirit, who is with us all the time. He guides us, he teaches us, he comforts us, he encourages us, so that even when we're in a very difficult spot, he will give us the resources that we need to honour God in that situation. Don't make any mistake, this paragraph doesn't mean that God will always ensure that we are saved from harm or danger. Far too many Christian martyrs have lived and died to prove that point. But it does mean that wherever we are, however difficult a situation that we find ourselves in, he will give us what we need to honour him in the situation. Brother Andrew, the great famous Christian missionary who has risked his life on countless occasions, has famously said, I can get a Christian into any country in the world, but I can't guarantee to get them out. So how do we move forward with all of this? Well, we need to accept that God knows us better than anybody else. That's the first message. We can't fool him. We can't pretend with him. And so we need to be real with him and acknowledge our need for change. Jesus, by his death and resurrection, has made the power available for us to change. It's the power of God's love. We need to talk to God about those areas of our lives which we're still keeping to ourselves and those fears that we're still holding on to. Give them over to him and really commit to prioritising him and putting our trust in him rather than in earthly things. And we need to believe that he is with us by his spirit and that if we step out for him, if we acknowledge him publicly, We had a wonderful testimony from Martin this morning about acknowledging him publicly in the barbers and in the gym. And I don't know where else Martin gets to talk about Jesus. But anyway, uh, it was great. But if we acknowledge him publicly, we will be given the words to say. It doesn't mean we'll be taken out of difficult situations, but we will know that he is with us in them. The choice is this. Carry on fearing a whole variety of people, situations, possibilities or hand them over to a loving and holy and powerful God. Amen.